our sermon text this morning, and it's uh, it's only three verses today. So, Co and I'm uh, looking forward to, as I'm sure everyone else is, is how you're going to unpack all that. Um, really thankful for the way that you are faithful to preach the word with God's help. Really, aren't you grateful for that, church? I know I am. It's Mark 9 and verse 30 through 32. Let's look at it together. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Seth, very much. Will you pray with me before we get started? Father, I know that I need your help. And I pray, of course, that you would please help everyone to essentially, in their hearts and minds, pray along with me that we need your help this morning to rightly focus on these truths and we need our hearts to be in the right place to receive these truths as we ought. Now that is something that we can't do in and of ourselves. We cannot create heart change in ourselves. Change habits, sure. Change the heart, that's your job. And I pray that you would please do it. Help us, Lord, to be lined up with the leading of your spirit this morning. I pray, Lord, that he would convict and convert those who might not know you yet, and I pray that he would continue to build up those of us who do know you. Help us to be the church that you want us to be, loving you, loving others. This is why you've made us. This is where we find our ultimate joy. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning again to you. Thank you very much for coming. It's good to see all of you. You might notice that when I come up here, I pause and I scan the room. I just like to see who I'm speaking to, and it also makes me happy to see who all has come. Sermon text this morning from Mark 9, 30 through 32, I've titled, Do You Have the Compass? Do you have the compass? You might say, I heard nothing about a compass in that text. And you were right. Good listening. We're going to talk about why I've titled it this later, and you'll probably see why as I go through the text. But let's say there's something life-changing that you need to know. A life-changing truth that will be a compass by which you'll direct the rest of your life. But let's say you don't know that truth yet. You don't know it yet. Now, let's also say there's someone who continues to patiently teach you that truth. This person continues to patiently teach you through your lack of understanding, and this person continues to persistently 
work with you and repeat this truth and help you to want to understand this truth, to help you not only want to understand it, but to actually understand it and to be changed by it so that that truth can then redirect your life and be the compass that directs all of your life from that point on. What would you think about this person? How would you describe this person in your mind? You would probably say, well, is this person so patient and persistent to make sure I have this truth that's good for me, that's going to guide me for the rest of my life? You'd probably say, well, this person is obviously loving. This person is obviously caring, kind-hearted, genuinely concerned for my well-being. That's how you would describe this person. That's how I would describe that person. This is... In this text, this is Jesus' second prediction of his death, burial, and resurrection. The second time he's done this for his disciples. Now, you may recall the first that happened was back in Mark chapter 8. It actually happened in Mark chapter 8, 31. And it's going to happen a total of three times in the Gospel of Mark. Three different times he's going to predict his death, burial, and resurrection. Each time it happens, there's a pattern There's a pattern each time he predicts his death, burial, and resurrection. So the first thing he does, he predicts his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's always followed by some failure on the part of the disciples. Some failure on their part. And then the third thing that always happens in this pattern is Jesus then teaches about discipleship. Remember last time in Mark 8, he pronounced this to the disciples, and then you might remember what the failure on the disciples' part was that time, because it was pretty bold and stands out to us, and all of us know that text. It was when Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Remember that? To which Jesus replies, well, Peter, calm down. It's all good. No, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, get behind me, Satan, a very strong rebuke back at Peter, showing him what was actually behind this rebuke that he thought he needed to give to Jesus. That was the failure, and he was telling him that he had his mind set on the things of man instead of on the things of God. And then Jesus gives us that beautiful but also very sobering teaching about what must be true of those who would be disciples of Jesus. If you remember that sermon, that was titled, What Does Jesus Expect of You? If you, didn't, you weren't able to hear that one, that was preached on March 21st. March 21st, What Does Jesus Expect of You? cfgadston.org forward slash sermons. There's a plug for our church. So we'll see the first two parts of our pattern again today. The prediction, the failure on the part, of the disciples. The third part of our pattern is going to come next week because we're going to see Jesus will again teach them something about discipleship. So be here next week for that because you're going to want to hear what Jesus has to teach them and through them teach us about how do we be good disciples of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does it look like? Because there's more. Jesus has more to tell us. This patient, persistent teacher of ours wants to continually help us learn things that will be a good compass for our lives. And 
Jesus wants to give the disciples that compass that will be the thing to navigate them through their lives, as we're going to see more of in just a second. But Jesus and his disciples, if you remember from last week, have just been in the presence of a demon-possessed young man. And again, if you missed that one from last week, that was titled, Know Your Enemy and Know His Enemy. Listen to that one too if you didn't. I think because it was scriptural, it was good. Not necessarily because I preached it, but because I believe it was scriptural, which is why you should hear it as well. They just left this young man's presence, who was demon-possessed. Jesus cast the demon out, who says this kind, he says this kind goes only out by prayer. And then we get this in verse 30 of our text. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. Galilee, where is that? Northern region of Israel, where Jesus is from, because the town of Nazareth is in the region of Galilee. You might remember, Jesus' ministry has been centered around this area so far. He will travel down from here, but so far, a lot of it is centered around Galilee, in Galilee. He has preached in synagogues. He has healed many. He's cast out demons, all in this region. He would have been well-known. He was well-known. Great crowds gathered wherever he was, and they waited on him. But at this point, Jesus wants to pass through undetected. Why? Why does he want to pass through undetected at this point? Because that's what the text says. He didn't want anyone to know about it. He just wants to pass through incognito for a different reason, for some reason. That's greater than being seen by the people. What is that greater reason? Look at verse 31. We don't have to guess. We're told in the scriptures. Verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. When he's killed, after three days, he will rise. What was the greater purpose? He was preparing his disciples for his departure. That was the greater purpose. I don't want anyone to see me right now. I'm going to focus on the 12 I've chosen, the 12 God's given me out of the world, and I'm going to prepare them for my departure. I'm going to give them a truth that's going to be central for their life and going to be the compass for the direction of how they'll do everything else in their life. At certain times, listen to this, at certain times, there were levels of importance in Jesus' actions. There were levels of importance in Jesus' actions, and there's level of importance in all, everything God does. Some things are more important than others in the mind and heart of God. And for the second time, he would foretell the event that everything would hinge on in the future of their lives, our lives, Christianity. Everything would hinge on this concerning the work of God and the salvation of man. And so Jesus shares it again. He begins by saying that he's going to be delivered, look what the text says, into the hands of men and be killed by them. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men and be killed by them. 
It's interesting that we just saw in the previous sermon that demons, demons, as wicked as they are, they know to fall down in the presence of Jesus. They know it's right for them to fall down in the presence of Jesus. We see that often in the scriptures, as we talked about last week. But man, mankind, descendants of Adam, will be the ones to kill Jesus. Mankind, the only created being that was created in the image of God, will be the ones to kill the Son of God. Demons hate Jesus, to be sure, and work against him daily. But they also rightly tremble before him. Demons tremble before Jesus. Listen to James 2.19. You believe there is one God, you do well. Even demons believe and tremble, he says. You believe there's one God? Good. That's good. But he says, but demons show they know that the one God actually exists and show that they have a better understanding of that truth and who he actually is than us sometimes because they actually tremble at that truth. Demons respond sometimes better to that truth than man does. Granted, they hate it. They hate God, but they know God. Not in a, not in a saving way, of course, but they've seen him, and they know to tremble before him. But man, mankind, made in the image of God, the height, really, of all his created things, we are rebellious. We will blaspheme his name and laugh about it. Granted, not all of us. When I say we, of course, I just mean collectively as a people. The perfect and powerful Son of God, God's only begotten Son, who only does what's right, who only does what's good, who only does what's true, perfect, obeying the Father's will. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men by men and be killed by men. Man is the boldest rebel of all of God's creation. Man is the boldest rebel of all of God's creation. And Jesus tells the 12 of God's plan that the Son of Man is going to be killed by men. The Son of Man is going to be killed by men. It's, it's purposeful there the way he worded that. You and I know that this death, this burial, this resurrection is the only hope for rebellious man, right? We know that. Man cannot save himself Man tries to save himself. He cannot. This is the only way for man to be saved. Jesus said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Man would rather have a God who agrees with him in every area of his twisted thinking and perverted lusts. I'm going to say that again because it's true. 
Man, in general, would rather have a God who agrees with him in every area of his twisted thinking and perverted lusts. He prefers that God. He prefers a God like that and attempts to make a God like that. We can make idols with our minds or with our hands. Either one. And they're both the same. Many of us, I've done it in the past before I was saved. I had a God after my own liking. And he was totally fine with my sinful, prideful, self-centered, lustful lifestyle. He was fine with it. He was going to let me in heaven. This God, I'm telling you, when I thought about him, you know what he looked like? He just looked like just this happy God. He just loves me. His only reason of it, the only thing that really gave his heart happiness was just to love me. He just wanted to love me. The way I define love, of course. Not the way the Bible defines love, but the way I defined it. He was content in just letting me do what I wanted. He was fine with it. And the God of the Bible is not like that. The God of the Bible knows that the most loving thing he can do for you is tell you the truth and deliver you from what's damning you, which is your sin. Your sin that you think is so pleasurable, so freeing, is actually caging you. Jesus said, he who sins is a slave of sin. We think our sin frees us. We even have something that happened in the 60s. We called it the sexual revolution. Remember that? We were... People were saying, hey, I'm going, to be, I'm going to free myself through doing what I want with my body, with whoever I want, and I'm free. And it's actually a cage, a cage that you can't break out of. Only Jesus can free you from it. And it's actually a cage you don't even see until Jesus opens your eyes. All sin is like that. All sin but man will craft a God to his own liking and serve that God rather than his true creator, which is what Romans 1 says. When Jesus is telling the disciples at a later point what to expect after his ascension, it's later on in the book of John, actually. Chronologically, I mean later on. After he's ascended back to the Father, he tells them why men, why men will do these things. Why men will deliver him up to be killed. He tells them why, why they're going to do this. Listen to John 16. John 16, 1 through 3. And it's also on the screen behind me. Follow, follow along. <clears throat> I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> and they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. They'll do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. Now, who's Jesus referring to in that passage that would be doing the killing? He's talking about the Jewish religious leaders, because he says they'll put you out of the synagogue. That's the Jewish leaders. So we're talking about Pharisees, teachers of the law, scribes, Those men, 
Now, what do we know about those men? They were very religious. They had large portions of Scripture memorized. They were even paid money to teach the Scriptures. Paid money. And they, at the same time, hated Jesus. They, they hated him. It wasn't just like, you know what, we don't like that guy. Just, just ignore him. He's just some kook. Just let him do his thing. They hated him, and they said, we should kill him. Kill him. We actually want to see him crucified. And they did, and they stood there and even made fun of him while he's bleeding, gasping for air, getting words out on the cross. He's calling for Elijah. Let's see if he'll come and rescue him. Ha, ha, ha. And they hated him. They were very religious. They knew large portions of scripture and hated Jesus. And Jesus says, you know why they're doing this? They haven't known the Father or me. They have not known the Father. How can that be? How can that be? To know so much Bible and also hate God so much. Now, of course, they wouldn't have said they hated God. I wouldn't have told you I hated God back when I was in my sins. Because remember, I had the wrong God. Why could they look at Jesus in the face and hate him? Because the God they said they loved was a God they invented. Though they would have told you he's the one true God, the God of the Bible. But I'm telling you right now, and the Bible tells us, it's impossible to know that God without Jesus. Impossible. The Jews of present day don't worship the same God we worship because they deny Jesus. We have a different God than they do. Now we'll say, but, but they believe in the God of the Old Testament. Yes, they do. But if they're ignoring Jesus, they don't have that same God. So how can this be? How does this work? It shows the utter depravity of the heart of man. That's where it stems from. Things like this should scare us, though. They should scare us, especially here in the South, where we're very churched. Not as much as we used to be, I get that. But I'm going to tell you something right now. And some of you are going to think, what did he just say? I think the decline of church attendance and the decline of kind of a church morality in our culture, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I'll tell you why. Because the true followers of Jesus are going to come up through that. There were a lot of moral churchgoers back in the day because it was just part of the culture just to go to church who weren't really saved. They weren't. You've worked with some of them. You hung around some of them. And I'm talking about that older generation. I've been around a lot of them. 
And it's just shocking to know you look at this man outside of church and see how he acts, and you say, and he's a deacon? And it was just so very common. So that's why I'm saying I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily that there's now becoming this big departure from church attendance. I want there to be church attendance, but there's something that got mixed in in the South that meant if you go to church and you're just sort of good, then you're a Christian. And we taught that for a long time. It was especially propagated when it was walk this aisle, say this prayer, you're in the club. And that's what got me fooled too back when I was eight years old. I didn't want to go to hell. (laughs) How do I not go to hell? Pray this prayer? Sweet, that was easy. And I'm in. My mom thinks I'm in. My dad thinks I'm in. My grandmother, my grandfather, they were all there when I was baptized and I must be in. And as long as I say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, please, thank you, make decent grades and get them fooled, I'll live like the devil whenever I want else because I can do that. Now, I know that I've gotten a little bit off the original topic here, but I just felt like I needed to labor a bit more on that point of who's actually in and who's actually out and how it's possible to be out but think you're in. How do you know if you're that person? How do you know if you're just religious but not real? Let me ask you this. Do you have a genuine love for God and also a genuine desire to obey his word. Genuine love for God and a desire to obey. Do you have those? And then also, do you have a real hatred of your sin and a desire to confess it when you do it? So, love for God, desire to obey him, hatred of sin, desire to confess it. Are those things there in your life? If they're not, that is a good reason for you to doubt your salvation. True love of God that causes me to really want to obey, not just, well, this would be good to do, but no, something that's in you, something that's inside you that says, I want to obey God because I love him. Not because I'll get in trouble if I don't, but because I really love him. And then a real hatred of sin, not just, I know this is bad. No, I mean hatred. Like you do it and you feel really bad and until you confess it, you feel even worse. That's what I mean. That, if those things are there, good. So that's a good evidence that you know the Lord. If they're not there or even one's lacking, pray and ask God to help you. I'm telling you these truths not to make anyone feel guilty. I'm telling you these truths because heaven and hell hang in the balance here. And it all hinges on what Jesus has just told his disciples is going to happen to him. Because this is how you're delivered from all that. This is how you're delivered from a false religion, false God, and a false gospel. And there's plenty of false gospel going around. A lot. It builds big churches. 
You think I don't know how to entertain people? Okay? I mean, a lot of you know I've got my own YouTube channel. 12,000 subscribers. I know how to entertain people. But this is not for entertainment up here. In your teaching, show seriousness, the Bible says. And guess what? Truth, real hard truth, not always super entertaining, is it? Look at Jesus' followers when he started. All these people were following him. And guess what? It shrunk, and it shrunk some more. And then Jesus said to his disciples, are you going to go away as well? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have what? The words of eternal life. Who else will we go to, Jesus? You have truth. I could fill these seats if I wanted to. I could mimic lots of popular pastors and ignore unpopular truth. But that's not what Jesus did. He gave them hard truth right there. They're going to deliver me up and kill me. And then he said to them, and they're going to kill some of you because you're my followers. That's not, that doesn't grow big churches, does it? Love for God, desire to obey him, hatred of sin, confessing it. These things show that someone's really got this compass in them, directing them, guiding them. Those who possess these traits have them because God put them there through faith in Jesus. Amen? Now that work of Jesus that he's now predicting for the second time would be what God uses to transform the heart of men. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. But verse 32 says this. Verse 32, unfortunately, says this. This is the part where we get the failure of the disciples on their part again. They did not understand the saying. They did not understand the saying. And it says they were afraid to ask him. Now, four things. Why were they afraid to ask him? Why shouldn't they have been afraid to ask him? Let's talk about also what they missed and then what you could be missing. Why they might have been afraid to ask him. Well, <laughs> don't forget, last time someone piped up after Jesus predicted his death, <laughs> Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Now, was Peter asking a genuine question? Like, Lord, I'm a little confused. I have such a strong desire to know what you're saying, though, because you have the words of eternal life. Will you please help us understand? No. He rebuked him. He rebuked Jesus. And so, of course, Jesus is going to have strong words. But they were afraid at this point to even ask him a question. They thought, is he going to rebuke us? No. Not if you come to God in faith, humility, genuinely desiring to learn. He's going to meet you there, and he's going to help you. So... That's why they shouldn't have been afraid. They shouldn't have been afraid to ask. Do you really think if you are studying these scriptures with a genuine heart that really wants to know the truth, do you think he's going to rebuke you? No, he's going to help you. Why? Because that's what he does. He's telling them a second time about these truths. Why? Because he wants them to know. He wants them to learn. 
Because these are vital truths for them to know and learn. These will be the center compass of everything they do from here on out. You and I need not be afraid to come to Jesus and ask him. In fact, did you know that the Bible says you have not because you ask not? The Bible also says come boldly before the throne of grace. Did you know that maybe you're struggling with something still or don't understand something still? Maybe because you haven't prayed and asked God to help you? Or maybe prayed enough? God wants you to ask him. God wants you to pray and ask him. He likes to be asked. I've told you guys this so many times. He likes to be asked. He likes it and responds. Now, what they missed and what they could be missing. Notice it says, they don't understand. They don't get it. They missed, and they're still missing, this great truth that's life-changing. They missed it. Why? Maybe because they haven't been asking for help from him. Help us understand this. What do you mean by this? Also, we know that they were sometimes very focused on self. We're going to see after Jesus' next prediction that a few of them are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. A focus on self will hinder your focus on truth. It will. And what you could be missing, I also talked about that. What are you, what are you most concerned about right now in your walk with the Lord? What do you see as one of the biggest hindrances right now in your life for what's keeping you from advancing further with Jesus? Really, I want you guys to think about this for a second, okay? Because I've got something in my mind for myself that I'm, I think, yeah, that probably need to get that in check a bit more. God's helping me get it in check because he's been talking to me about it for a while. By his grace, he's helping me get it in check. But really, think right now. What do you think in your life right now is one of your biggest hindrances that's keeping you from advancing further with Jesus? Think about it. And I feel very sure that God's not only showing it to you, that he's also telling you what the remedy is. It's very rare that God just points a sin out and says, hey, sin, see, bad, bad sin. No, he usually says, and this is the way. Walk in it, right? I feel very sure he's telling all of you right now what that is and how to overcome it. And be persistent. Your adversary, the devil, he knows you really well. He knows what trips you up. He knows what... Um, People that struggle with addictions and things like that, they call them triggers, things that trigger them to fall into that sin. He knows what your triggers are too. I know what some of mine are, which is why I have to be very careful, which is why I have to put boundaries around myself, rules in my life that keep me from those things. If you don't have those, 
If you don't, have, if you, if you don't know your weaknesses and are therefore setting up boundaries to keep you from those, I'm just going to say it because I love you. You're a very foolish person, a very foolish person. If you know those things that tempt you to sin and cause you to sin, and you're not actively avoiding those things and putting guards against those, you're a very, very foolish person. Do not be that. Read the book of Proverbs. It contrasts the fool and the wise man so often. It'll help you. I want you to be helped. If you have this compass in your life, it'll especially guide you. And the compass is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What he did for you to deliver you from your sin when you got saved and to keep pointing you in the right path your whole life long. The early church got this gospel compass and it directed them in everything they did. Peter, preaching his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. I made this uh, slide for you guys, Acts 2. Well, Wade did actually, but I gave him the reference, so thank you, Wade. Acts 2, 30 through 32. Listen to this. Listen for death, burial, resurrection, talk. Listen for that. Being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, Peter's preaching about David, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. That's burial. This Jesus, God, raised up. And of that, we're all witnesses Death, burial, and resurrection made it into Peter's first sermon as important. Also, in the next chapter of the book of Acts, Acts 3, after a crippled beggar is healed by Peter, Peter preaches to this crowd that's gathered, a whole crowd gathered around because this guy that everybody knew that was crippled all of a sudden is jumping up and dancing around, and Peter says, ooh, a crowd. This is my cue. And he starts preaching. Verses 17 and 19 of Acts 3. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. The suffering of Jesus made it into his second sermon. Then, when Peter and John are on trial for preaching Jesus... Listen to Acts 4, verses 9 through 11. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Death, resurrection, again, permeating Paul's, Peter's sermons, Peter's conversations. Why? Because it's now central. This truth that Jesus kept telling them and kept telling them that they weren't understanding eventually is so central. It's the compass to everything they do that now directs all that they say and do. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is central. Paul and Silas later on, some of, the first, some of the first missionaries, preaching the gospel and gaining converts. Look at Acts 17. Now when they had passed through 
Amphipolis and Apollon Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, what? Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So Paul goes in to the Jewish synagogue week after week, three in a row. And what's he try to do? He tries to persuade them that their best life is now. No. He preaches to them about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's his main point. That's the compass leading him to say everything he says and do everything he does. And then look at Acts 26. This is getting towards the end of Paul's life. He's on trial. And we don't see him begging for his life, recanting everything he taught. When he's placed, when he's got hard questions and put in front, put in front of him, he's not like a lot of the popular people we see today on YouTube and things like that. When they're hit with a hard question, they say, you know, I don't know. You know, I don't know. You know, I don't know. You know what I want? I want some people who know the truth. Is that what you want? I want Christians who know the truth of the word of God and who are gripped by it, willing to live for it and willing to die for it. And that's what Jesus came to procure salvation for people like that. That's what the new church coming up in the South, because there's a dying church, and there's going to be a new church birthed out of that dying church. That's what the new church is going to look like. That's at least what Christ Fellowship is going to look like, God willing. Small in number, ooh, ooh, strong in gospel. And there'll be some churches like that that'll be a haven for people that are really looking for the truth. Praise God. When they walk through our doors, they'll find that. Not just in me, in you. That's what I want for you. That's the flock I'm trying to make here. Listen to what Paul says. We're going to walk in the example of Paul, too. On trial, not apologizing for the truth, not saying, listen, I'll say whatever you want me to say. Just get me out of these chains. Acts 26, 22 and 23. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and the Gentiles. What's on, what's on Paul's lips? The gospel. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that is the only hope to give light to darkness. The only hope to save both Jews and Greeks. That's what Paul's concerned about. On trial, in chains, the gospel. Salvation of souls. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ becomes the guiding truth that keeps finding its way into everything the early Christians were doing because it was the reason behind everything the early Christians were doing. It keeps finding itself into everything they're saying because it was the reason behind everything they were saying. Without the finished work of Christ, there would be no Christians. 
right? Without the finished work of Christ, there would be no Christians because there would be no atonement for sin, which the Father would then receive as payment for the punishment for all that sinners deserved. Being pleased with that payment, the Father then would raise Jesus from the dead as proof that the price was paid and accepted, showing that the Father was pleased with the payment and showing that Jesus is who he says he is. All that the prophets wrote, all that Moses wrote, was fulfilled in Jesus. He's the only mediator between God and man. And without his finished work, none of that's true. In closing, without that, then nothing in Christianity is possible because everything in Christianity is founded on and powered by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad we have a patient and persistent God who's continually making that the center compass of our life, just like he did with the 12 back then? Aren't you glad for that? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would please help us to continue to know the truth. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would continually change us by this same truth. And I pray that you would help us as a church proclaim this truth with our mouths and with our lives because we have to have both. Give us people who know the truth. Cause us to be people who know the truth and are changed by the truth. Live for the truth, and if need be, die for the truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.